Hi, thanks for joining us on Him We Proclaim with our Bible teacher, Dr. John Fonville. We are continuing the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. John has entitled the next several messages, The Peace of the Church. Is Jesus interested in there being peace in his church? Absolutely. And what disrupts that peace is tolerating sin, false teachers, and their false doctrine. It's upsetting to believers and disruptive to the gospel going forth. One could say it's an age-old problem. The teaching today will give us a good foundation about this important topic to believers. Here's John with the Peace of the Church, Part 8. Look what the Apostle, uh, look what the Apostle Paul does. The, he gives several steps that the church, church leadership, everybody is to take. And so look at verse 14. Here's the first one. The first severe step, he says, take note of that person. Verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Uh, Albert Einstein once said this, he says, if I were given one hour to save the planet, he said, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute resolving it. Einstein's statement fits exactly with what Paul is saying here. The first step Paul commands the faithful members and leadership to do he says, is to identify those who refuse to obey the teaching of Scripture in the church. Identify them. Now, he doesn't say how this is to be done, and various solutions have been suggested. But it seems that Paul is probably just exhorting faithful members of the church, make a mental note of those who are leading disorderly lives in the church. And everybody would have known who they were Everybody would have known who got the new teaching, who left their day jobs and were sponging off members in the, in the church. They could make mental notes. They would know who that was. And so in this context, the faithful members, Paul says, they are to, to carefully note those who are teaching that Christ has already come. They are to take careful note that some have left their day jobs and are being busybodies in the church. Now, keep in mind how severe this measure would have been. This letter was read in the public gathering of this church. That's quite severe. And those disorderly members were sitting there hearing, them being, hearing themselves being read about while everybody in the church is faithful going, oh, know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite severe. Now remember, it didn't start here because it didn't have to be like this. There had been manifold, repeated opportunities where they had come in love to these people and said, cut it out. And they refused to listen. And so Paul says, okay, I have no other choice because of the peace of the church and the witness of the gospel Take special note of them. False teaching and disorderly behavior in the church cannot be overlooked and swept under the carpet. Believe me, it's more comfortable to do that. But the first step to solving a problem is to identify the problem. For example, if there is a rattlesnake in the room 
somebody needs to identify it pretty quickly, <laughs> right? Paul wants the faithful members of the church to make a clear mental note of those who are being disorderly. Now, look at verse 14. He spells out the reason for identifying the disorderly. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, and here it is, and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So the second command that Paul gives is, is don't associate with them. The faithful members are to identify those who are disorderly so that they can avoid their negative influence and not be wrapped up with them. Paul is just simply repeating his previous instruction in verse 6. Look what he said back in verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So what does it mean not to associate? Well, again, various suggestions have been given, but there's a clue given to us in 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians, the only other occurrence of this verb in the New Testament, associate with, the only other occurrence is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 11. And so this gives us hints to what Paul is talking about. So I want to give you the background so you understand what this means by do not associate with. Because churches throughout the centuries have gravely abused this and, and hurt people. That's not what Paul's doing here. Let me give you some background to it. In both 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is addressing similar disciplinary, grave disciplinary, unrepented of sin problems in the church. And he's dealing either with bad doctrine or bad behavior or both, in both contexts. And he's doing it with professing believers in the church. So the contexts are fairly similar Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, I wrote, you in my, I wrote to you in my letter, and listen, not to associate with, exact same verb, with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He says, but actually, he says, I wrote to you not, here's the verb again, not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. And listen, not even to eat with such a one. Now, there are the clues for us. The book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts, makes it clear that in the early church in the first century, they had what was called communal meals. They would come together and have communal meals. And these meals were characterized by the sharing of food and worship and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so the importance of eating together in, these Jew in a Jewish culture and in Greco-Roman culture, meals in the first century, played a very important role 
in the life of organizations, including the church. So what you had in a Greco-Roman household or a Jewish household is that they would share meals which signified acceptance and fellowship. The love feast in the church was to be a living example of unity in the body of Christ where there was peace, not disorder. This unity was so such a very serious matter that in the love feast, these communal meals, they're mentioned, listen, the denunciation of false teachers and the admonishments of the congregation. The significance of this event was such that unhindered, unhindered participation of false believers, false teachers, in these love feasts signified their acceptance into the fellowship. And their acceptance of these disorderly believers was a blemish or it was a taint on the reputation of the church in the community. And so at the congregational meal, it might be what Paul is saying when he says, do not associate with them is that he's commanding those who are disorderly when they come to the communal meals, they're supposed to eat by themselves. Because that would be an appropriate discipline for those who refuse to work, are sponging off other people, and spreading false teaching in the congregation. We're going to make it clear, they're not with us. But I think it's something else going on there, which would probably be this. As I said, these communal meals in the early church were very closely connected to the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul says, do not even eat with such a one, he's talking about when they're gathered together for the Lord's Supper. And I believe that's what he's probably getting at here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He's probably saying that those who are rebellious, insubordinate, refuse to obey, they're not to be allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. When he commands the church, do not associate with him. He is calling on the church, the leadership of the church, to fence the Lord's table because the sacrament was served in these communal meals. And suspension from communion would certainly be appropriate and severe discipline to disorderly members who are disrupting the peace of the church because holy communion is the height of the church's unity and peace. And allowing this to happen would harm the witness of the gospel to those outside the church, and it would harm the church and the peace and unity of the church. Deliberate disobedience to Christ's commands is uncharacteristic of a believer. And so Paul says those who are in such an impenitent state are to be excluded from participating in the Lord's Supper. Listen to question 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, it says, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are displeased with with themselves for their sins, yet trust that these sins are forgiven them, and that their remaining infirmity is covered by the passion and death of Christ, 
and those who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. In other words, not those who are perfect, because nobody could come, but those who come are those who are displeased with themselves, but yet trusting that Christ has forgiven them and they want to obey. There's not a, an insubordination about their attitude. It says, but the impenitent and hypocrites, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And then it goes on. So are those to be admitted to the supper who show themselves to be by their confession, their doctrine, or their life, unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer is no, for by this covenant of God is profaned and his wrath provoked against the whole church. Wherefore, the Christian church is bound according to the command of Christ and Christ's apostles to administer the office of the keys to exclude such persons until they amend their life. So what are the keys of the kingdom? The keys of the kingdom are simply the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. And it is by the preaching of the gospel and church discipline that the kingdom of heaven is either opened or closed. And so when Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians, don't associate with them, what is he saying? He's saying this, if any believer shows himself or herself unsound, disorderly in either doctrine or life, and after repeated admonitions, continues to refuse to return from this disorderly way, Paul says you must exclude them from the Lord's Supper. They cannot participate. They cannot come. They can only come until they demonstrate real repentance, and then they can be received again as members of Christ and of his church. And so this is quite severe. This is just short of saying you're excommunicated from the body of Christ. And so at the end of verse 14, Paul says the purpose of this excluding the suspension from the table of the Lord is so that a disorderly believer, quote, will be put to shame. When this believer, Paul says, is excluded from personal fellowship at the Lord's table, they are given the opportunity to think deeply about how grievous the error of their ways are and to reflect on it and hopefully come to an awareness, come to their senses and feel the acute shame that sin brings into our life. The harm that they've done to the body, the harm that they've done to the witness of the gospel, the harm that they've done in sponging off other church members, the harm that they've done in spreading a false gospel that Christ has already returned. And Paul says, this is, these stern measures are to lead the erring believer to repent of this disorderly behavior so they can be restored. Now to look at verse 15 as we finish, to aid in this outcome, Paul tells us the spirit in which the church is to carry out these severe steps of discipline. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now that is a remarkable statement. Paul says discipline of sinning members is both firm and gentle. The church exercises severe discipline on those who are disorderly not to treat them as an enemy, but as an erring brother who needs to be restored. 
brought back. He says, warn him as a brother. So there's no place for harshness when we try to correct fellow believers who are going astray in their doctrine or in their life. Back in chapter two, Paul says that these believers have been deceived. But regrettably, this has not always been the case. Let me just quickly give you one example from church history to show you how the church sometimes has not been faithful to follow verse 15. Back in the third century, you had what's called the Edict of Decius. Decius made the profession of Christianity a capital offense. If you profess to be a Christian, you're going to go be fed to a lion. So to avoid persecution, many Christians hurried to the pagan temples and offered sacrifices to obtain certificates or false certificates to make it look like they have sacrificed when they didn't because they didn't want to go be eaten by a lion. So what happened when these lapsed Christians who had sacrificed to avoid persecution looked to be readmitted into the life of the church the church didn't know how to respond at this point. They were trying to figure things out, so this is what they did. The church subjected these lapsed Christians to lifelong penance and did not admit them back to communion until they were on their deathbed. Clearly, such discipline was too rigorous and too severe, <laughs> right? But Paul says there are times when sterner measures are needed, and Paul reminds the church that such discipline, when these sterner measures are needed, carry this out in a spirit of gentleness. You see an example of this, of, of Paul's command in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which I've already alluded to, there was a brother in the church who was committing grave sin. He was committing incest. And Paul says, this brother needs to be severely disciplined and handed over to Satan. That's very severe discipline. The faithful majority of the Corinthian church obeyed Paul. They carried out severe discipline on this grave sin that was destroying the witness of the church. But apparently they had not lifted their discipline and so when Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthian church, listen to what he says to them in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. He says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul said, enough, back it off. <laughs> Reaffirm your love for him because he could be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The, Paul says, deliver this person over. Do not associate with them. Exclude them from the Lord's Supper so they'll be brought to shame. He says, but don't let the shame of sin and the pain of exclusion from the Lord's Supper be such that the offender faces the possibility of falling into utter despair and, and just is succumbed to depression and just quits. Because the purpose of this is not to destroy somebody. The purpose of this is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. 
The one whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And at the time, the other Hebrew says, this discipline doesn't feel very good. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. This is all about restoration to the joy of the gospel and fellowship of the church. And so Paul teaches here that there's no place for harshness. There's no place for hostility when you correct fellow Christians. The task is to admonish them faithfully, warn them as members of Christ. And and then he says the point may be reached where they can no longer be regarded as believers because they just will not refuse to quit their ways. But Paul says until that time comes, aim at their reformation not their humiliation. So as we come to the end of Paul's letter, I realize that you're probably sitting there thinking, man, this feels like about 400,000 pounds of just seriousness. (laughs) It is. But the reason it is is because the peace of the church matters. And so as we come to the end of Paul's letter and we reflect on this, just very quickly look at verses 16 through 18. How is such peace possible in such a chaotic and difficult situation? The answer is prayer. Paul concludes his letter with a prayer. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself, the Lord of peace himself, continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And then verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul says this. The only way peace will ultimately come to the church is through the presence of the Lord of peace. He calls Jesus the Lord of peace. And it's interesting how Paul ties the presence of the Lord of peace with the sacrament of communion and church discipline in these verses because Christ has promised both through the sacrament and through discipline, he is present with his people in the church. And so Paul prays that the Lord of peace himself will be present with the church and continually grant the church peace as the church obeys his commands to discipline the Syrian brother. So Paul's goodbye here, his wrapping up this letter isn't a standard, oh, goodbye. Let me say a fancy way to say goodbye. The grace of the Lord be with you all. Grace be with you. The peace of the Lord be with you. You know, you just sound like high church. No, no, these are not throwaway words. When Paul prays, the Lord be with you all, this is the only way chaos and disorder will flee out of the church and peace will come. This prayer recalls the congregational greeting that we pray every week in corporate worship. In fact, this is where our congregational greeting comes from. The Lord be with you, and you say back to me, and also with you. That's exactly where this comes from. The Lord be with you as a prayer for the blessing of the Lord's presence. What better prayer to pray for another person than to have the Lord of peace be with them? And so if peace is to be achieved in the church, it must be granted by the Lord of peace who who is present with his church. Jesus is the one who has established peace through his cross. Right? He is the prince of peace. 
He is the Lord, Paul says, he is the Lord of peace. He is the one who imparts peace to his church. And so Paul concludes this letter. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's a fitting way to conclude that letter, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, who is the Lord of peace. Thank you that he can come into the chaos in every circumstance of our life. Where there's disorder, where there's disruption, where there is a lack of peace. And thank you that he can come and reign in peace and that he can, through grace, grant to us the peace that we desperately need. And so we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come, Father, through your Son and grant peace to your church here. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Peace of the Church from the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time 